Hello, and welcome to Unstuffing Our Story with me, Catrice Horsley. In today's show, I'm interviewing Anthony Anaxaguru, a poet, a publisher, a writer, an educator, an activist, and an all-round pretty incredible human being. During the show, we're discussing the poetry world at the moment. We're also discussing the difference between being learned and being academic, and does one have to have studied for a long time to be learned? Apparently not. It is all in the stories that were made to believe. And Anthony will be sharing the people who inspired him and the events that happened to him in his life that enabled him to become the person he is now. You will notice there were a few problems with Anthony's microphone, but it does get better during the interview. So tune yourselves in, settle yourselves down and get ready to listen to his story. Thank you very, very, very much for agreeing to be part of this Unstuffing Our Story podcast. And I'm really excited about it and also very anxious about it because it's one of the first times that I've just let recorded stuff be out there. Um, So I'm feeling slightly scared, which means that I'm also feeling slightly courageous because I'm going ahead with it. For now, I was thinking it might be really interesting for the people who are going to tune in to know a little bit about your story. And I'm thinking in terms of if you were a character within your story, which you are, would you be a trickster? Would you be a kind of a, an everyman? Would you be a hero on a quest? What kind of a archetype do you think you would be in this story that you're living of your life? Mm. Well, I think it's difficult to to pin down any mm. kind of singular heroine or protagonist because we're, mm. we're constantly we're constantly changing as people and um, becoming different people, evolving into different things, and so it depends on what part of your of what part of my life that question is relevant to. And I kind of feel that you know when you're young, you're probably more kind of artful, you're more cocksure. Um, you're more witty, courageous, adventurous, but you're also incredibly naive to how the mm. world works as well um, mm. and how people respond to you as an individual living in the world. So I think that's kind of, that's how I was, that's how I felt myself to be in my kind of, you know, late teens, early 20s, moving into kind of adulthood. And um, I think now it's more, like I feel a lot more settled and content with my kind of role within literature now and the kind of poetic milieu um, or the poetry landscape in the UK. Um, like I feel it's my home. I know more or less, I'm familiar with more or less everyone. If I don't know them personally, I know their work, people who are writing, who are making work now. Mm. Um and so I feel very much engaged and connected with it. And, and in that sense, I see myself as um, as part of something, you know. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. But how long how long did that take for you? You, you use the word home, I feel at home yeah. uh, now. Um, so what did it feel like before? Were you peripheral? And what made the difference? Yeah, I mean, I felt, 
for a very, and I cover this in in the book actually. Like I felt like mm. a pariah for a for a very long time. Um, I felt that it was an industry. It was a community of writers that were very um, splintered, that were separated by um, by class, by race, by gender, and I, I felt that it wasn't this kind of all-encompassing, all-welcoming kind of community that presented itself as such. And so I that's why I took to spoken word. And I think my gateway, and, and like many others, my gateway into poetry was through spoken word because of the fact that the more traditional, established forms of writing felt more exclusionary and they didn't reflect the world that I was coming from, my poetics, the way that I thought, how I organised things in my head, there was no room for assimilation. And so I kind of felt that spoken word, which was for me an art form or a mode of poetry that appealed to people that came from broken places, largely mm. people that came from trauma, people that came from marginalised groups that, mm. that, you know, that were struggling and, and in the process of healing. Mm. And so I felt that there wasn't really a critical element prevalent in the spoken word community. So you could go there with a poem and no one's going to tell you it's rubbish. They'll, they'll tell you something nice about it. Yeah. And I needed that at the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting that you were talking about we can't, kind of fix one story on ourselves because we're always developing and yet there was a perceived narrative that you had about the poetry world being separate and not welcoming and you being outside that Mm. but then you feeling part of this spoken word world um, that was more engaging would you and welcoming would you say it's changed now And, and would you say that that has been one of the main thrusts of your work and what you do. Yeah, I mean, I think the landscape as a whole has, has shifted uh, quite dramatically, actually, over the last, um, I'd say over the last five to six years, you know, from 2014, 2015 onwards, we've seen like a seismic shift in the ways in which uh, poets of colour, uh, queer poets, working class poets, female poets, um, how they're being perceived how they're being read how they're being awarded and recognized and so I feel that that what that has done to spoken word and this is literally just an observation so there's Mm. nothing empirical that suggests this is what I'm saying is true it's just an observation from my standing is that we have seen a lot of people who began in spoken word who are now in their maybe mid to late 20s who are almost bypassing the spoken word mode and looking to go into publishing um, a pamphlet with a publisher or, you know, a first collection, which mm. when I was, you know, if we went back 10 years, I self published several books because of the fact that I didn't feel that my writing could fit the list of any of the publishers that I was familiar with. And so that's kind of what ended up leading to me setting up out, outspoken press was, was exactly that. Whereas now I feel because publishing has changed, editors are a lot more ecumenical, a lot more um, open to different kinds of poetries that they, and 
what that happens, then it filters onto review culture and prize culture. They all have a kind of knock-on effect. And what that does mm. is it inspires and galvanises younger generations who also come from those communities and those worlds to think, right, cool, like I'm welcome here. Like there's a place for me mm. and for people like me. Mm. So that's kind of what it's done. It's interesting um, you're, you're saying that. And I have a little list of questions in front of me. And one of them is to do with, was there ever a time you felt that um, the story you were living was not your story? And what did you do about that? And you've actually just spoken about that with regards to that world wasn't your world. Mm -hmm. And you went into it through spoken word. And now you're changing that world to be more inclusive and more representative. Now there does seem to be more ownership from the people who are doing it and more recognition from the people who are promoting it and putting it out there. But that was only, as you say, five or six years ago that you noticed that change. How much further do you think we have to go? Well, I I don't know if it's a a case of start, middle and end, you know. Uh, I I think it's it's something, it's the way that culture is, is created, disseminated and preserved. My fear, my anxiety around this is that Publishers, agencies, prizes, they respond to markets. The market is a reflection of obviously the wider body politic and the populace of the country and what they want to see. So my anxiety lies in the fact that in 10 years' time, if the pendulum was to swing the other way and the markets were to shift in what they wanted from art, from literary arts, from poetry, from theatre, what would that then mean to the people who are writing now? That's one anxiety. The second anxiety that I have, I only have two major ones. <laughs> Lucky yeah, for you. <laughs> I mean, with this, yeah. And, and the, the second one is, is duty of care. Uh, and it's something mm. that this is more specific to the fiction world. And that is that there is a huge surge in um, taking on poet, uh, writers of colour Uh, writers that come from Mm. like I say marginalized groups or minority groups or whatever it might be and just publishing their first book and marketing it as uh, an African book an Asian book by a British Asian or a British African or British Caribbean and my thing is is that editors and publishing houses need to invest in these writers in the way they would a white 21 year old woman from Shropshire who's publishing her debut and has given has been a you know 120 grand advance for a debut like these are the kind of things that i think aren't spoken about enough is the duty there that editors mm. have and publishing houses have to ensure that there is a career there not that they just publish basically a bad book that isn't ready to go out simply because they're responding to an appetite that they've gauged within the market right right and that's actually it's that's uh an uncomfortable thing to say in some ways um but i think that is representative of a lot of your work you say the uncomfortable stuff i want to go to back a little bit to this idea of your story and your your life story as such and you talk about being peripheral and kind of being on the outside of this perceived world. What would you say 
were some of the really defining moments in your story that made you feel that, yes, I can do this, I can take this on, this is my world and this is my passion and I'm going to live yeah. it? What were the defining um, moments, do you well, think? I think? I think there was there was two major events that happened within the 10-year hiatus that I took. Uh, the first one was my uncle dying um, when, I, when I was mm. 18. Uh, he had a heart attack uh, on a boat uh, and it was just me and him there. So I, kind of, I held him for... A good half an hour and until he until he died, and I cover all this in the in the book in the how to write book. And he was a man who was, you know, he was Cypriot. He'd come over to the to England in the fifties um, from you know destitute poverty, but he was an autodidact in that he was a rag and bow man. He never did have a real mm. profession. He was a teacher, but he lasted about two months and then he got fired because he was quite an eccentric. Um, and he was he was a man of letters. For someone who'd never been to school, never had any formal education, he knew a lot about kind of classical literature and Shakespeare and poetry and, and the kind of romantics and, and all the rest of it. And I remember being 18, 19, well, 18 when he died, I just heard. And um, he was, yeah, he was telling me a lot about my things, the things that I was writing. And he encouraged me to, to pursue it. He said, you know, you've got, a, you've got a knack for this stuff. And I remember on the day that he actually died, I'd written an essay the night before um, and I had it written for some time and then he found it in the morning and we sat and we had breakfast together at his house in Kent and um, he was just going through like literally editing my essay and saying like you know you could do this here and you've used this word already and this is repetitive mm. and, and, so, and when when he died it kind of confirmed to me that you don't have to have uh, almost like formal training or formal education mm. to have a curiosity mm. and interest in in what is perceived as being higher thought so um, mm. that was one and then I think the other one was when I got made redundant uh, from my job in 2008 um, and I kind of just that's when I said right I want to I want to have a go at trying to pick up this writing again because I hadn't written for you know close to a decade so um, I decided from getting made redundant I had no real qualifications I was working for 16 grand a year uh, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I didn't really have much going for me. Uh, and I was 27, 28 at the time. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. You know what you're saying about your mm. uncle and being a man of words. And a lot of people who know me might say that I have a chip on mm. my shoulder. Uh, and they might be right. I don't know. I have a thing about... What does it mean to be yeah. professional? Who decided that? You know, is this a professional mm. podcast? Because I haven't got like a proper microphone. I haven't got a soundproof room. So is that denying me access to this yeah. world? Because I don't have those things. And I, I mentioned in the one of the, the first thing that I did on the podcast about meeting this woman in a, a high security prison, an incredible woman, so bloody wise. And she'd... Uh, said something to do I can't even remember what it was um, but it was this really profound thing I wrote it on mm. a scrap of paper and then I was talking to somebody afterwards and they said oh that's Aristotle and I was like no I don't think it is I think it was this mm. woman actually who came up with that and I don't think I'm pretty positive she'd never read Aristotle and it's almost like I, I've never been to university. I have no qualifications apart from an A level, mm. <laughs> an O level, a few O levels. And 
does that mean that we're not learned? Does that mean that we're not wise? It's almost like there's no way of many people proving the wisdom that they have and the job that they do yeah. every day. And yet they're doing it and proving it every day, but they don't have that piece of paper to say, actually, yeah. this is who I am and this is what I can do. And it frustrates the yeah, yeah, out yeah. of me. I mean, um, I, I think, you know, like I think that's, that, that's really interesting. Well, it's really interesting anecdote, the, 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 the need to feel that you have to correct someone in, in that kind of, in that kind of way, what what is that signalling? What are you posturing towards by saying by correcting someone mm. in in the way that you were corrected? Um, and I think secondly, it's this idea that unless we see something written down and we have proof of it, it doesn't exist. And that's the mm. qualification. It's I want to see a certificate that says that you know how to think in this discipline or in this way. Whereas you know, I can walk out of my house now and I think about the world. I think the difference is, is that institutions create a framework in how and when and what we consider uh. and organise and respond to the world. I think that's the key. That's yeah. the fundamental thing. It also, you also are demonstrating a discipline or the ability to sit with a particular subject and, and develop it interrogate it and respond to it that's again what the formal modes of education are signaling mm. but then absolutely not you know like I, I think about some of the best writers some of the best thinkers that have inspired me from the 20th century and they have very few qualifications if anything yet they are you know learning expanding unpacking the world throughout their life and they do it through art, they mm. do it through essays, they do it through talks and panels. And so I think anyone who tries to say that unless you have had a formal education of some kind, you can't be learned or you can't be curious about the world. <laughs> I'd very, be very mm. suspicious of those kinds of people. I think sometimes um, the responses come from their need to show that they yeah. know stuff. Um, more than the fact that they're curious and listening about but knowing somebody stuff else, is one thing. Um, that's the response. Yeah, that's the response it. to memory, like to know something. Whereas mm -hmm. I'm interested in in the kind of you know the epistemology, the the the, the mm -hmm. phenomenology, the the unpacking or the philosophy of knowledge, and how does that knowledge then get rendered and passed on or made into something mm -hmm. practical? How do you apply these mm -hmm. these philosophies and mm -hmm. these thoughts to a life? that might not be as ideal as a lot of the philosophies mm. kind of um, propose. Absolutely. And it's not that I'm anti-academia or academics. It's to do with the fact that I think a plumber should have as much yeah. status because an academic has to phone up a plumber when yeah. the toilet's filled with shit. So for me, it's to do with these systems that have created the hierarchies and the status yeah. that I have the issue with. Um, and, and again, yeah, I don't even know if that comes uh, out of academia. I think it's a, it's a class thing. It's a cultural thing. Um, mm. I know a lot of academics who, who are, you know, working class people and they work in, in universities, mm. they're senior lecturers, they're professors. Um, and, you know, we sit, and again, I'm someone who was on a building site. I was a security guard in 2013. And so it was like, you know, you sit down and you think about this stuff and you're just like, I'm having a conversation and I'm keeping up. And in fact, you know, there are some places where the professor 
will have a revelation because of something that you've said. So I kind of feel that this very binary way of, of quantifying intelligence, of thinking about what intelligence looks like, what academia, what knowledge and curiosity, what they look like, they're completely reductive. And an intelligent person, in my opinion, would not have a... Um, they wouldn't have this this kind of criteria. If you haven't got this, then you can't be that. Like intelligent person will understand that talking to a plumber uh, or talking to someone who works in a warehouse, they might not have, you know, a, a kind of artillery of, of words and polysyllabics and, you know, levels of articulacy. That's absolutely fine. But the thoughts that they're making, how they're responding, how they're organizing and seeing the world, that's profound. And I think you mm. can get that anywhere, mm. you know. You don't have to be in a university to have those experiences. Testify, mm. testify. Mm. Say it. You can do a little yeah. mic drop after that now. Don't do the yeah, mic yeah, drop because I need to hear you. Yeah. Okay, so don't, don't do that. <laughs> okay. Some of the wisest people I've met and some of the most resourceful have been people mm. who are illiterate who live yeah. in literate societies because to orientate yourself down the street through a supermarket in the bank when everything is based on literacy and you haven't broken the code yet I think is a remarkable feat of intelligence yeah. ingenuity and ability like hats but off to that like, I yeah for sure and I think there's it. another thing to kind of add to that and that is this idea of the oral tradition not being intelligent you know like mm. I, my grandmother was illiterate but she was full of stories and those stories were full of wisdom. They were full of like moral kind of constructs. And she couldn't, I mean, she could about read or write, but her handwriting was like a child. But um, it was, it was, it got to a point where it was like listening to her talk. We, again, we don't value the old tradition in the way that we do written letters. And that again is a, is a byproduct mm -hmm. of, of the printing press and what that did to mm -hmm. the way in which uh, uh, kind of letters, publishing, uh, the classes and what that, mm. how that reconfigured mm. the way that we responded to those things. I think anything that was written down was given great, yeah. <laughs> greater import than that stuff well, that wasn't. It, you go and buy a packet of chewing gums, and, they give you a receipt to prove that it happened. You know, like that's how much we need yeah. to see something written yeah. down to say that, you know, this is, this is worthy. I'm not going to take yeah. your word for it. I need to see a receipt. Yeah. And one of the things that's linked to that, um, I was reading your poem yeah. after the formalities. Uh, I, I love it. My favourite one, oh, yeah. I have to say, is you. Oh, God, man, that was like a tsunami of rubber bullets being pushed against my body incessantly until I was kind of numbed on the floor. And then those yeah. last two lines just were like, a, uh, I don't know, a breath of hope that lifted me up and placed me gently mm. back on the beach again. It was brilliant. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. Right, yes, mm. after the formalities. Sorry, back to after the formalities. And what I really loved about the poem is how you're talking so much about how the concept of race yeah. was introduced. And I think a lot of people who might be listening have no idea that race didn't even exist as a concept to do with people before mm. 1606 
and it was an invented thing. So this idea of, um, yeah, this idea of stories and systems that we live in that need to be peeled apart yeah. and pulled apart and raised up um, because it yeah. was written down. The concept of race was written down and therefore yeah. that gave us I mean, the first, I mean, it is really yeah. interesting, uh, race as a, as, as a construct. I mean, the first, well, the first documented um, system of, of categorization was actually in the 8th century, the Battle of Tours, which was the Spanish versus the Moors. And, and they had them down oh, yeah. as people of darker skin, uh, which basically meant that they were inferior to us. Um, these are like the early recordings, but there wasn't, as far as I'm aware, and the, and the books that I've read on on race and, and the history of race, there wasn't a, a taxonomy, a hierarchy that came much late, not much later on. Much and later. I mean, people were flirting with the ideas um, and obviously insinuating that if you had lighter skin, fairer, purer, virginity or snow, all those kind of like sim symbols were prevalent and you see it in Shakespeare's writing um, and, you, and you actually see it throughout in different places but I think what I found really interesting with, with, with race is how every from the 15th century onwards how every hundred years it just took almost like a drastic shift into a different you know it denoted yeah. a different group of people and it was it was defined and articulated mm. and expressed in a different what whiteness meant and what non-whiteness meant and that's kind of what I've always found quite, mm. quite fascinating is how, how, how supple the concept is, yet how fixed we are around these kind of immutable ideas that this is what we want. Absolutely. And that's, I think, going back to when we were talking, when uh, you just came online, the idea of how mm. it can be normalised so easily yeah. without anybody questioning it. And then it's taken mm. as a truth. And I, and it's I think a fact. the questioning comes back to the um, way in which these are systems of power. And so if you mm. were to have a gun pointed to your face on any given day, uh, and those the, the guns pointed at your face because of the fact that you are you're black or you're queer or you're Muslim, then you know the history of something isn't going to be your main concern. It's going to be why is this person yeah. pointing a gun to my face and why is my life under threat? So I kind of feel that we're left with mm. these two things happening. Mm. You have the immediacy of, of something like, oh, like God, race yeah. and, and racism, and then you have its lineage and its history. How did it come to be such a prevalent feature in the imaginations of, of white people? Why have white people become so obsessed mm. with this idea of race and the fact they're overrepresented by their race, but then at the same time, they are completely oblivious? And I think that, that kind of duality is really what's quite interesting. I'm going to come to a, a, another question for you, because for me, one of my reasons for doing the work that I do and for doing this podcast is this idea mm. of unstuffing those stories, like taking out these stories that we've swallowed since birth that form the marrow of our identities and going, yeah. why the hell do I believe that? And um, I lived for six years in Ghana and I went there off a council estate mm. in the north of Birmingham which was when I lived there younger it's predominantly Irish Catholic and then all yeah. of the problem families moved in That's, you read the reports area of high social deprivation etc mm. etc et I went to an Irish Catholic secondary school I yeah. thought Africa was one country and then I moved to Ghana 
And it was a huge culture shock going from, uh, yeah, going from the council estate to a small village in the north of Ghana. But I had no idea about social constructs, social narratives. I had no, nothing. I was uh, 23, 24 at the time. And I look back at that incredible naivety and I talk about it in one of the podcasts um, that I did earlier about I just wanted to be brown Mm. and I wanted to be skinny because I hated my white skin my dad's Irish I hated my white skin I saw it as being really ugly and yet my friend Yusula who was a Ghanaian woman had skin bleach on and she was eating all the leftovers because she wanted Mm. to be fat she wanted to be pale and I think that was one of those moments where for me, even though I didn't have the words uh, to describe cultural narrative, it was one of the moments where I mm. thought this is really messed up, that there's something inherently wrong with this. And then I started, uh, my daughter actually was a pivotal, uh, as she grew older, she went to do um, African studies and she did um, history and African studies. And she was coming back from university that I'd never attended using these phrases and these terms and educating Mm. me on what they meant. And then suddenly I had the language to articulate what it was that I was feeling, but I didn't have the language before that. And how did you find the language and where did that come from to articulate what you're doing now? Where, where did this word smithing um, come from? This crunchy, delicious, hmm. chewy, gristly um, language I, I don't, that you have. I mean, I've always been fascinated from, um, from a young age with how the world is put together and who gets to decide what. Um, and I think obviously reading, uh, listening, having endless discussions on these subjects with with friends with uh like you know academics and artists and activists and whoever else i think that's just kind of shaped my understanding of it all to be honest and i mean i'm i'm for buzzwords i think that buzzwords are helpful but then at the same time i think that what they do is they they can compress or truncate or whittle down a very complex um Mm. a very complex issue and what that does is that you obviously have to jettison a whole load of other things because of the fact that the buzzword, and I think people use the buzzword as a form of currency in that it's signaling, in that if you know what white fragility means or like, you know, patriarchy, it almost exonerates you from any kind of participation because you've thrown out a few buzzwords. And I mean, it is, it's a sig- it's basically saying I'm an ally because I'm familiar with these terms. And I think that there is the, the theoretical element for people that aren't affected by these systems of persecution you do have the theory um but my Mm. uh, where i am in my life at the moment is like i'm i know that these books are readily available and people you know they sit on their zooms and they have their fancy bookshelves in the back and it all looks very all looks very learned and, and very cultured but my thing is what do you actually do with your life what do you actually do with your time here that engages with the things that you've read or are we just reading things gaining some mm. knowledge and then sitting around the table and, you know, redistributing, repurposing, yeah. repurposing what we've already learned in a yeah. book as a way to accrue cultural mm. capital. And I think that's where I get, that's my thing at the moment mm. is that what do you do with your time? How are you applying yourself to deal and to ameliorate and to challenge and to disrupt and dismantle a lot of these systems? 
So you saying that, because mm. there's another thing on my list here, and I'm not keen on mm. buzzwords, but I'm very keen on metaphors. That's my thing. Um, sometimes <laughs> I use meta fives or meta sixes, you know, just to get my point across. But um, you're talking about that, you know, what do we do with our time and how do we manifest um, the knowledge that we're gaining in order to change and mm. challenge systems of oppression, repression, compression and depression. What advice would you give to others? Because you're changing the system. You're working in schools with young people. You're making poetry accessible. You're challenging concepts around elitism. You're lifting up the uncomfortable stuff and shining a light on it. What advice would you give to people that can help them step towards changing and challenging the stories that they might live in, that they're uncomfortable with, or in changing the narratives and yeah, systems I mean, of, of others? First of all, we have, we have to think, where do we get these ideas about ourselves from? Who, who is the narrator? Mm. Who's the author of our life? Are we, are we born mm. into a system that is mm. already dictating to us who we are and how we should be? And do we have any agency over accepting or rejecting those narratives and I think that when you do get to a, a certain age and you do feel that you've internalized and you start to believe the myths that you are told about yourself that's when you have the ability mm. to change it and, and I kind of feel that there is nothing on this earth that is fixed aside from the fact that we we are born and that we'll die I think everything else is in a state of flux you know the ways in which culture and, and interpersonal relations and all these kind of things, how they've worked over millennia is an example of the fact that things change mm. and individuals have agency over their, over their lives. And so I kind of feel my thing is, is that if you feel that somebody has told you something about yourself that doesn't fit right with you, then it's probably not true. Then that gives you, mm. that gives you permission uh, to change it and change it as in how, as in how you want. And so I kind of feel just don't believe, don't mm. believe the myth. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I remember yeah. talking to Ty, you know, the hip hop artist mm. who died earlier this year from COVID. And I was saying something about, you know, this, this thought of un, unpicking the stories that we're made out of and recognizing them, which I suppose another yeah. word for that would be intersectionality because it's like layers of narrative and he he said to me even your thoughts in a way your ability to yeah. think that is quite privileged that you have the space to do that and he said it's it's not I loved it he said it, it's not that we're given different menus it's that I as a black man I'm not mm. even allowed in the restaurant that you're eating at I'm outside looking in through the window and I know that for me, even though I was brought up and there was quite a lot of hardship, it was my parents, especially my mom, mm. who took that hardship away from me and made everything safe. But she had to live with the stress of having no money, of having no food, of... And she didn't have that luxury of thinking about whose story am I living. She just wanted to get yeah. the bloody food on the table for the evening. She, you know, all the reaching down the backs of the sofas and looking in the pockets of your coats to see if you can find hmm. 25p that would buy a loaf of bread. And it was that desperate. So there's something to do with even having the space in your brain to think and the impact of stress and toxic stress is, is well recorded mm. now on cognitive functioning. Yeah. That's a luxury as well. 
So what you, you say about kind of unpicking the myth, how can we help others do that? Uh, those people who are just laden with these stressors and narratives that are so negative and crushing. It is there, is there anything that you think might um, be useful? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, been about, you've done. it's been about pursuing what feels right for me inside. And I mean, I've been many different people as, as we mm. all have through our lives. We occupy different spaces. We, we, we take on different roles and there are things that I've done in my life that just don't sit well with me. You know, I, I tried playing an instrument. I love the idea of, of a musician, of, of being someone who makes music for a living. I'm just very bad at making music. Um, I find it very <laughs> difficult holding a guitar, playing a guitar, thinking uh, as a musician. And, and I had to just accept that <laughs> I'm much better listening to music and enjoying it than what I am making it. And so I feel that, you know, as we get older, mm. we try different things out and and the things that feel right for you, that feel natural, that feel that you get a certain amount of pleasure from to pursue those things. Because that's really that's really the ultimate mm. that that's the dream, you know, is to wake up every morning and do something that you mm. enjoy doing. And if the narrative that you're being told, mm. oh, you're not good enough for this, or no, this thing isn't really for you, this is more then I think that it's really important to, like I say, dismiss not accept not believe not internalize and not settle because what it means is that that person who's telling you that thing at some point someone dissuaded them from pursuing what they wanted to pursue and they believe them what it means it means that at some point they fell yeah. for the myth and now they are trying to pass the myth on you can't be who you want to be mm. then i also think there's another, another side because again that's very individualistic it's it's you know rooted in capitalism and and whatever else and i kind of think that the other side to this equation is the idea of be part of a community be part of people uh, rather than mm. becoming so mm. self-engrossed and so self-obsessed that we forget that we are living among people who are all trying to live their life you know and they're mm. trying to live their life with us mm. in it mm. and so i kind of feel that uh, what gets missed from a lot of talk around, you know, pursuing dreams and careers and, you know, self-help and motivational speaking is the idea that we are part of a a world. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just think that, you know, it's, it's important to keep that in, in perspective. So now what I'm going to do is ask you some quick fire questions and I'm going to do this with every guest on the show. So are you ready? Yes. Okie dokie. The first question is, what was your favourite story as a child? Um, my favourite story as a child, I used to read um, a lot of, oh yeah, it was a safe place. That's what it was. I used to read kind of horror books like Point Point Horror, I think they were called. Um, but the first book that I really was taken by was called um, A Safe Place. And they based the film Sleepers on that book. Okay. And what, what's it about? Um, it's about uh, growing up in um, Hell's Kitchen in New York, uh, Italian-American family. Mm. I mean, it's really about a boy's relationship with a very abusive um, and domineering and quite honestly, psychotic father. Um, and then obviously he goes, he gets, a, he gets, um, 
he goes to prison or to like a, a young offenders institute and he's abused by one of the guards, which is what Sleepers, the film, is about. Right. Um, but that's right. like a, a sec kind of memoir. Um, <gasps> so, yeah, it's, it's pretty horrific, but it was it was it was really interesting in how it just looks at masculinity, um, particularly like in Mediterranean families and then immigrant um, families as well. So yeah, it was, right. it was interesting. Right. And it's interesting that you say that particularly in Mediterranean mm. um, families, because I think everybody has an assumption that masculinity is the same everywhere and it's not. There are nuances oh, yeah. and differences. Yeah, very much so. Okay. So, um, I want you to finish this sentence. Creating our own lived stories requires perseverance, temerity, and tenacity. Perfect. I like the alliteration on the last two. Thanks. Ten out of ten, you get a gold star. Um, what sustains you right now? Um, just future projects, things that I'm working on, poems that I'm writing for um, mm. for a new book. Um, just excited about thinking um and getting up each day and, and kind of just making things that didn't exist before um mm -hmm. that really is i mean there's not much to sustain you anymore because i don't really see anyone you know the whole world has basically changed um and so it is literally just my books mm -hmm. and my and my work at the moment that's occupied mm -hmm. 90 mm -hmm. of my time um, i think there's something important at the moment to do with creating more than we consume yeah for sure uh, my focus is all really trying to focus on creation, not consumption. Yeah, I think um, that's what happens when you get, when time takes on a different meaning um, because mm. of the way that things change in society. And so I find my, I'm writing for my own peace of mind and trying to maintain some kind of semblance of control and sanity. So yeah. writing takes on a different meaning at the moment. Yeah. Now I can fully relate to that. Absolutely. Um, the one, two, three, fourth question. What movies or books or series or documentaries would you recommend mm. that um, you've read or listened to that have made a bit of a difference to you? I listen to, I don't really watch much television. Um, mm. I'm not big on the TV stuff, um, but I um, consume a lot of, media on my phone so i listen to podcasts uh on being is a really good one. oh i love that yeah, one on being is, is great um i just like i like her questions but i also like that it just feels very like some podcasts feel very erratic very intense very like they want to get to the bottom of it as quick as they can because everyone's on the timer but that one just feels very casual and I don't know. It's more rigorous. You get into stuff with the, with the writers and the people, the guests that she has on there. So I like that one. I like Commonplace, which is mm. another one where she, um, Rachel Zucker interviews poets. And again, it's like it's for me, poets are some of the most fascinating people on the planet. And I've learned probably more from listening to other poets talk about the world than what I have listening to professors and philosophers and, and things like this, because I think that. Mm with the way that the poet the poet mind works is that there's there's several different things at play you have the kind of the emotional the sentimental the em empathetic side of things but then you also have the kind of divergent like that very lateral way of thinking like original a new way of thinking about stuff so mm. yeah i kind of commonplace is really good um 
and then there's some other one philosophy bites i listen to the paris review i listen to uh, you know more mainstream ones uh, the- yeah so, yeah yeah I I love there's a poetry one called Unbound. Oh yes, Unbound. Yeah, I think that's oh, part I love of Beyond that. Being. I think they're part of. Yes, it is. It's under the same umbrella. Yeah, and I remember listening to that, and somebody saying that poems were mirrors or doorways, and mm. um, poems either give you a way of looking at yourself mm. that is slightly different or truer, or they give you a doorway into another way of being uh, uh, another world in a way. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I really like that simple, but it kind of encapsulates the complexity yeah, of sure. poetry and what it offers us at the moment. Mm. And then the last question is, what is the most important story we should be carrying right now? Well, I think it's like, it's it's really about this idea that who we are and and where we come from and acknowledging our histories, acknowledging the fact that we are not singular. You know, we're made up of many different experiences of many different histories of, of overlapping and interacting histories. And, and I think that's really for me anyway, like how I construct identity and how I move into the future is with this body and with this self. It's pretty much around knowing what came before and how that all constitutes into kind of a augmentation of what I am now. So mm. I feel that acknowledging that, understanding that, thinking about that, dissecting those lineages, for me, are really, are really important. And the stories there, there's, you know, there's legacies, there's events, there's traumas, there's joy, there's um, things that have come, yeah. you know. I think that's one of the most difficult things that we do as human beings is carry the complexity of our stories mm. and also the complexity of other people's stories. It's so easy to say my my father was, you know, horrendous mm. or my father was a great father. Mm. And certainly for me, my truth is mm. that, you know, there were times when my dad wasn't the dad that I wanted him to be at yeah. all and times when he was perfect. And what story do I choose to tell myself and what story do I choose to tell others mm. because both of those stories. Yeah. True. And I think that one of the issues that we have is that the way that technology has shaped and the way that it reflects our, the way that we constitute, the way that we um, package and organize thought is that we've created this very binary way, this polarizing mm. way of thinking about the world. So it's either this or it's that, but like you say, you could be a great father at one particular time and then a bad father over a period of two, three years, and then you were better again. You know, so it all, it all, I think nuance is the most important thing and looking at people in their totality uh, rather than trying to cherry pick and focus on a particular point in time that you feel suits what it is that you want to say. I know that you have referred to your book, um, which is a book to help writers write, um, but focused around poetry. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, that that was a, a book that was written uh, over the lockdown period, actually, from um, April all uh, through to June. Um, and it, it's um, it's a small book. It's, a, it's supposed to be a, a pocket guidebook. And it's got a number of things. It's got some memoir. So I kind of use my my experiences at school um, and 
the, I was in all the bottom sets um, at secondary school uh, in English and maths and all the rest of it. So I kind of look at how that shapes our outlook and our sense of self through our teenage years and then getting into poetry and then taking um, a hiatus for 10 years uh, due to a number of personal things that happened in my life when I was um, 18. And I kind of expand on all that, but so it's interspersed with theory as well, like looking at the constructs of language, language philosophy, um, how we put poems together, why some work, why some don't work. So I do kind of look at, the theoretical side of, of poetry and writing and also fiction as well um but more so poetry and, and I, it mm. kind of journeys through the years um from me being a young boy up until the present time and like i say it's just littered and interspersed with tips and, and advice and just things to help people think about what it is that they're doing on the page and then right at the end it's got sections about how do you go about getting a manuscript published? What's a royalty? What's an advance? What does an agent do? How do I get an agent? Um, do I need one? The Instagram, the internet. Like, There's a whole load of things mm. that I think are quite um, relevant in today's kind of publishing landscape. And then the politics of mm. writing as well. You know, like there's a whole section on race, class, gender, um, discrepancies within genres um, and what we've been doing as a kind of culture, as a community to to try and uh, combat and dismantle a lot of those um, inequalities. Your book sounds incredibly useful. So can people go to your website to order um, that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, my guy, the guy who like, develops my website is waiting on a coder to get it up. So um, okay. that's yeah. not at the moment. It should be up within the next week or two. But Amazon is selling it. All the bookshops I've seen Brilliant. around are selling it. It's around. Okay. And what's it uh, How again? to write it. <laughs> That's a pretty good, it wasn't, it, very it good wasn't title. My title. It's part of the theory, so there's a help. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it, it does what it says yeah, on the exactly. tin, as yeah, they yeah. say. <laughs> okay, thank you once no, more uh, for being part of it. Uh, I really, really, really enjoyed it. Found it incredibly enriching, yeah. and I'm so pleased that Absolutely. we met. Absolutely, yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Okay, you yeah. take care. Have a lovely, you lovely too. day. Bye. So thank you to listening to this episode of Unstuffing Our Story. The next episode, there'll be every two weeks, it will come out on Friday the 13th of November. But do not worry, we will be in the safe and capable hands of an incredible woman, Sandra Carter. She is a woman who inspires young people to take ownership of their lives and narrate their futures, a woman who is an author and a woman who has one of the best laughs I have ever heard. So please listen to us on Friday the 13th of November. She will be sharing her knowledge around music, around youth work, around Afrofuturism and around writing and working in communities. So I really look forward to being with you then. Also, remember to click on the Instagram page, Unstuffing Our Story, in order to find out more about who's coming up and news about the podcast. Okay, bye for now.